You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Your Bibles and go to 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to continue our series in this look at First Peter, while you're turning there, I will. Um, I'm going to ask you if you know about. Oh, I feel burdened uh, to make sure you are uh, culturally savvy today. All right, um, but do you know about the phenomenon uh, that's been labeled promposals? All right, you can you can Google this uh, later. Uh, in fact, you can waste your entire afternoon on it. And it is, it's the idea that, man, when you ask somebody to prom now, you don't just ask them to prom. You, it has to be an event. It is a, uh, it has to be Twitter worthy, all right? It has to be something that goes on Instagram. And so it's more than just getting asked, it's, it's how you get asked. So here's one I, I found, um, the report said it this way, no worse feeling uh, than being rejected by your dream school, except maybe knowing that your prom date orchestrated the entire thing. Caitlin Metker's boyfriend sent her a forged letter from the college she was hoping to attend in the fall, saying her acceptance was on the line due to bad grades, poor attendance. The only way they would reconsider is if she agreed to go to prom with her boyfriend. <laughs> How you doing? All right. Uh, luckily, she thought that was funny, posted it on Twitter, and said yes. Um, th- that's the way it is. It's, a, it's, it's an event, something elaborate and praiseworthy, a, a tell-the-world kind of promposal, the magnificent proposal. You know, Peter, he, uh, he's been talking about something like that, but something vastly greater. He has been talking about all that, that God has done to claim us as his own. Um, and, that, and that is praiseworthy and, and worth telling the world about is what he's going to tell us this morning. And so, so this, the, what we're looking at this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2, it's really it's a continuation of everything that we've been looking at. And if you remember last week, you know, so as a people, we're a holy temple. We're united to Jesus. He's the chief cornerstone. And in as God's dwelling place, the, the church, we have a, a, a status, we have a ministry. And in verse 5, he, he makes those two points. Uh, verse 5 of chapter 2. And then he describes, so he's been describing our standing before God, who we are. And then he's been talking to us intermittently about, okay, since this is who we are, now, now this is what we do. This is, this is what we look like. And so this morning he's going to continue in that same pattern. We're going to begin in verse 9. We're just going to look at a couple of verses. Um, and then we'll finish chapter 2 next week. But verse 9, it says it this way. Uh, he, he continues, but, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, A people for his own possession. Peter lifts these words right out of Exodus chapter 19. After God has 
redeemed Israel from, from Egypt and brings them to the mountain is going to consecrate them as his people. And he says to them, he reminds them in Deuteronomy, I, I didn't do this because of who you were. You, you were the least of everybody, but I chose you because I loved you. My love was for you. And in the end of verse 9, all of this is so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A few things I want to notice about this verse. The first is, is the all-encompassing thing. He's reminding us, again, this is our identity. What it, it's what it means when we belong to Jesus. And so I, I want you to hear it. So he's writing 2,000 years ago to these believers scattered across Asia Minor. But I want you to hear this morning, if you're a believer in Christ, he's talking about you chosen and royal and holy, his possession. These things are as true of you as the fact that if this morning you say, you know what, I'm a, I'm a Texan or I'm an American or I'm a, I'm a Tylerite. It's, it's as true of you as if you were to say, I'm an accountant or a lawyer or a school teacher or a salesman or a student. It's no less true than you being a husband or wife or mother or father or daughter or brother or sister. In fact, I'd argue this morning that the things Peter says here in verse 9, they're, they're actually more true about you than anything else. When you think about yourself and your identity and who you are, these things, I would argue, are more true than anything else about you. And they're more true because they never come to an end. It's who you are now. It's who you will be for eternity. Chosen by God. Overwhelmed by His grace. You are His and will always be. You know, when he talks about chosen, there's a, there's a real privilege that he speaks of. It's personal application here. We're we're chosen, we're, we're a part of him, we're in Jesus, and we're also this chosen people, this chosen race, we're a part of each other. See, we're a part of each other. Our identity as believers are bound up with each other in Christ. So when God sees you, such great truth, when God sees you and he sees you, he looks upon you when he hears you pray, when he considers your ways, which is all the time, by the way. You are never apart from him. He always sees you. And when he sees you, he sees you in Jesus. You, he sees you in his son. You've been united to Jesus. And he sees you in community with the body of Christ. He, he doesn't see you apart from his other believers. He, he, he doesn't see you apart from the church that is the body of Christ. He sees you united in Christ. He sees you as part of the body. You're not known apart from Jesus. You're not known apart from the church. You, you might say it this way. It, it's, this is your squad. It's a new term for me. It means group or 
your peeps or your, your gang. A few years ago, you might have said posse, but posse's old, makes you sound old. It's a squad now. T Taylor Swift has a squad. There are Swifties. Th these are the fans, the, the crowd. They, they, they buy the tickets. They go to her concerts. They, they buy her T-shirts. They scream at the concerts. They know all the words to her song. The, 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 those, are the, those are the Swifties. But then, and you follow her on Instagram, get all this information, there is her squad. It's her circle of people. It's the inner circle. It's, it's those that, that know her. They're, and, you're, and you're proud of your squad if you have. In fact, the whole big hashtag now, if you're not doing it, you're, you're out. Hashtag squad goals. What are your squad goals? It's, it's part of who you are. See, they know her. Her squad knows her differently than the Swifties do. The squad, they have slumber parties, eat ice cream, take groupies, which is selfies with more than one person. <laughs> Post it on Instagram for the world to see. They listen to music together, go shopping, eat fancy lunches, they even eat leftovers together. You know the people you eat leftovers with? Those, those people, you, know, you open the fridge and you say, hey, I have some leftover spaghetti. Do you want some? That's your squad. I know I'm, I'm way too much about Taylor Swift. I know. I have two daughters. I'm on round two of Taylor Swift. Thank you very much. So. But here's the truth. So, so the girls that are a part of her squad, I mean, they, they look, they're daughters, they're singers, models. I, I don't know what they are. They, they do other stuff. But the minute they're identified as part of her squad, that's how they're known to everybody else. It's a place of honor. It's the inner circle. People see them. They reckon, oh, you're that girl. You're in the squad. And say, yes, I am. It's a place of honor. The point is, you're, you're on the inner circle. You're, you're chosen. You're the body of Christ, not individually. You, you can't be a one-person squad. That's just sad. <laughs> you have a people. You are a people, a chosen people, a chosen race. You're the inner circle. You will be forever. That's your identity. You're the church, the body of Christ. And it's more true of you, more lasting truth about you than anything else. Well, next he says you're a priesthood. He's a royal priesthood. Verse 5, he said holy priesthood. Here he says royal priesthood. Royal priest means a priest to the king. You're in service of the king. And what it depicts is, is that you are in the very presence of God. You, you should never grow used to that idea. For thousands of years, the people of God, they weren't able to enter into the presence of God. It was, it was shut off to them, the, the Shekinah glory where, where that dwelt. It, it was too much. The, the priests could, could go, but, but only once a year, but when Jesus is crucified, the veil, the veil is torn, the, the cross opens up, the place of, of access and intimacy to the God that created us. At any moment, at any moment, you walk straight into the presence of God. You, you live in the presence of God. And then he says, you're his possession, his a holy nation, his own 
possession, marked out, carved out, set aside as his. I want you to hear me. God didn't come to give you your life back. He came to give you a new life. Christ didn't come for you to have an extreme makeover, a better version of you. He came to take your life over. God reached down into humanity, down into the world, and calls you to himself. It's a glorious thing. Your your identity is one that God's taken his arms of grace. And he he has enveloped you in it. He says, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. You might say, listen, you may never experience human success, but God says you're mine. Maybe your body's broken. It restricts you and holds you back. God says you're mine. Maybe you're living with all the troubles that come with being in a fallen world. God says you're mine. Maybe you don't have friends that totally accept you. Maybe you don't have the wall of accomplishments that somebody you know has. It doesn't matter. God says you're mine. Maybe maybe your children aren't what you perceive everybody else's children to be. doesn't matter. God says you're mine. You may look different than you hoped. It's okay. You are mine. I've taken you as my own. I love you. You're mine. That's what God says. His own possession. I imagine Peter's just overwhelmed as he writes this. In verse 10, he says, um, I just love Peter. Look, he's not saying anything new. He continues to draw from the Old Testament. Verse 9, Exodus 19. Verse 10, Hosea. Hosea chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. says, once you were not a people, that's how you were. You, You once were not a people. But now, you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you, you have received mercy. Hosea 2.23, that's where he pulls that from. It's, what, it's God's message to his people. He uses this prophet Hosea, and Hosea lives out who God is to them. In fact, how, how he shows this mercy, how he brings us close, it tells us that in Hosea 2.23. In Hosea chapter 3, the next chapter, he, he gives us this picture. He sends, he, he sends Hosea out into the marketplace to the auction block to buy his adulterous, unfaithful wife to buy her back. And as she's on the auction block, probably stripped of clothing, in all of her shame. Can you imagine? You have to think, oh, 
How did I get to this place? The road I have walked to this moment. The last person she probably wanted to see or ever expected to see thought she'd see there's her husband he doesn't come he doesn't ridicule her he doesn't shame her you know what he does he outbids everyone and he buys her back and covers her she was not a she'd gone away from him and in mercy and grace, he goes back for her. It's God saying, I want, I want to show you who I am. I want to show you the depth of my love. We've been shown mercy. I would say this, we, since we've been shown mercy, more mercy than we could possibly imagine. We should be people of mercy. Listen, if you've received mercy, and if you're a believer this morning in Jesus, you have received mercy. We should be a people of mercy. People who, who are the body of Christ. See, we, ad we adopt a culture of mercy with each other. That's incredibly powerful. If there's any way that a, that a church stands apart from the world around it, it is mercy. There should be mercy. See, we all have this deep desire for, to, be, to be loved, to, to be accepted. We, we come into a place. Maybe you're visiting this morning. Friends, there, there are those among us visiting this morning and the questions that go through your mind. You, you've been there. I mean, what are people going to think about me? Are they, are they going to like me? If they knew me, would they accept me? Just a few things that go through our minds. All of us struggle with these insecurities to one degree or another. The most powerful thing that we can do for somebody else is to, is to love them. It simply means, that, hey, here's a safe space. You can be who you are. It, Instead of being torn down, here's, here's mercy. We, you're loved. So every believer you know, including yourself, you've walked this long, ugly road on the way to grace. You have. It's why we put locks on our diaries, right? For some of the people that walk through these doors or walk into your life, they're still on that ugly road. Grace is still around the corner. But the church, we're, we're a people of mercy because we've been shown great mercy. It's 9 and 10. It's, it's who you are. And he's going to pick back up again. Verse 11. And here's, let's think of it as application. I want to show you three things. One of those is, Remember that you're an alien. Second one is, the Christian life's not a video game. That's what Peter says. And the third is, that we're to dance like everybody's looking. 
We're to live like aliens. Remember that you're an alien. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Live like an alien. It's important to remember that who, who, who we are and where we are and, and where we're not. So we're on earth. We're not in heaven or in the new heavens or new earth. We are away from home, which means that while our life in Christ has been inaugurated, it, it has begun. Absolutely. It has not been fully consummated. And so because of that, we experience, we struggle with these passions of the flesh, which brings us to the second point. The Christian life is not a video game. It is for real. So Peter's saying, listen, we, we have to wage a war. We, we have to fight. The, the Christian life, it's not, this video, it's not an app on your phone where you just play at war. It's a very real struggle. He, he struggled. He's, he's honest about this. The, the power and the dominion of sin, it's been defeated, but the, the body of sin, the presence of sin, it's still with us. So you struggle. You're going to be tempted. Sin has no power to demand a place of priority in your life, but it's still present. Don't give in to it, Peter says. It's a, it's a war. Gerhard Ford, this old theologian, says, mistakenly, the gospel's preached as though it were a repair job on old beings, a new patch on old garments. But we need something infinitely more than that, don't we? And Paul says in Romans chapter 7, he says, I don't understand my own actions. I, I, I do not do what I want to do, but, but I do the very thing I hate. He goes on, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want. I keep on doing it. And he, in this cry of desperation, the end of chapter 7, wretched man am I who will deliver me. Jai Packer, in his book, Knowing God, if I haven't said this before, I have said this before. If you weren't here to hear me say it. If you, it, so read your Bible. Read it every day. And if you haven't read Knowing God, read it. Read the Bible. Read J.I. Packer. Chapter 21. just want to give you a flavor of what he says about this. It says, a certain type of ministry of the gospel is cruel. It, it doesn't mean to be, but it is. It, it means to magnify grace, but what it does is rather the opposite. It scales down the problem of sin and loses touch with the purpose of God. The effect is twofold. First, to depict the worst of, work of grace as less than it really is. The second, to leave people with a gospel that's not big enough to cover the whole area of their need. It's like Isaiah in Isaiah 28, 20. For, for the bed's too short to stretch oneself out on, the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. It's a blanket that never quite covers you all the way. He, he goes on to say, when we talk about grace and, and the grace that God has wrought in our life, that, 
what, what he's done to bring us to salvation and, and to give us this new identity. But what happens is he says this, he says, we play down the rougher side of the Christian life, the daily chastening, the endless war with sin and Satan, the periodic walks in darkness, as to give the impression that the normal Christian life is a perfect bed of roses, a state of affairs which everything in the garden's lovely all the time and no problems ever exist. Or if they do, they have only to be taken to the throne of grace and then they'll melt away at once. It's to suggest that the world, the flesh, and the devil give us no serious trouble once we become Christians. Nor will our circumstances or personal relationships ever be a problem to us. Nor will we ever be a problem to ourselves. Such suggestions are mischievous, however, because they are false. Packer says that the message that comes with a gospel that's not realistic about the struggle in life leaves us to say there must be something wrong. But the truth is, long-standing problems of temperament, of personal relationships, of felt wants, of nagging temptations, they're still there, sometimes indeed intensified. God does not make their circumstances notably easier, rather the reverse. Dissatisfaction recurs over your wife or your husband or your parents or your in-laws or your children or your colleagues. or Temptations, bad habits, which when you were converted, they just seemed to go away. They, they reappear. I mean, just yesterday, oh, just yesterday, I set out for the Dad of the Year Award. You ever done that? Saturday. Jay, as soon as you're done with driving, I'm going to pick you up. We're going to spend the day. We're going to, just got a new, about to drive. Just bought an old pickup truck and needs some things done on it. So we're going to do that together. I go to Pet Boys, buy the stuff, go home, watch the YouTube videos. I mean, what can go wrong, right? Ask the guy, how long does this take? Oh, it's take about an hour. We start at 1.30 at about 7.30. <laughs> I'm so frustrated. I've absolutely lost my faith, I think. Nobody wants to be around me. We were last night going to cook, have dinner together. I blew it. I blew it. Had to go into a house full of people walking on eggshells and say, I'm so sorry. Hug Jay and say, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. That's the Christian life. Packer says the remedy usually goes like this. Created bondage for such it is by leading young Christians to regard all experiences of frustration and perplexity as signs of substandard Christianity. And now induces further bondage by a straitjacket of remedy which proposes to dispel these experiences. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe this is the Christianity you practice. It, 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 it insists on diagnosing the struggle 
which it equates with defeat as a relapse caused by failure to maintain your consecration and your faith. And at first, so it is suggested, that when you're converted, at that moment, you're fully surrendered to your newfound Savior, hence his joy. But since then, you've grown cold or callous and compromised his obedience in some way, ceased to sustain the moment-by-moment trust in the Lord Jesus. This is why you are experiencing what you're experiencing now. And the remedy is is to find him, to confess, to forsake, to reconsecrate yourself, to maintain that daily consecration, to to learn new habits. And when problems and temptations come, it's merely as simple as handing them over to Christ for him to deal with. And And if you do this, then you will once more, in the theological as well as metaphorical sense, be on top of the world. And he says, That is false. It fails to grasp New Testament teaching on sanctification and the Christian warfare. It does not understand the meaning of growth and grace. It does not understand the operation of indwelling sin. It confuses the Christian life on earth with the Christian life that will be in heaven. Listen, deliberate sin, you go out, you deliberate sin, yes. I mean, it it creates discontent and lack of joy. It, it, It brings with it pain. You you won't find joy and rest in the midst of sin and indulging sinful behavior. It it obstructs your ability to know God's favor. You've sinned against him, but he's not your fraternity pledge captain. He's not your prison guard. He is your father. Packer, I'll give you a couple more. It's so good. Just go read chapter 21. There's nothing unnatural in an increase of temptations. Conflicts and pressure as the Christian goes on with God, indeed something would be wrong if it did not happen. Listen, beloved Christian, the power of sin has been broken, but the presence of sin still remains. Martin Luther wrote, he said, man, when I baptized, when I was baptized, I, I, thought, I, I thought the old Adam had drowned in the water of baptism, but I discovered that miserable wretch can swim. (laughs) The world, the flesh, the devil, as John writes, they're here, they're real, it's a struggle. So Packer says, so how does God's grace work? He says, how does God in grace work? prosecute this purpose. It's not by shielding us from the assault by the world, the flesh, the devil, or protecting us from burdensome and frustrating circumstances, nor by shielding us from troubles created by our own temperament or psychology, but rather by exposing us to all these things so as to overwhelm us with a sense of our own inadequacy and drive us to cling to him more closely. It's the ultimate reason from our standpoint why God fills our lives with troubles and perplexities of one sort or another to ensure that we will learn to hold fast. It's the reason the Bible spends so much time 
reiterating that God is a strong rock, a firm defense, a sure refuge, and a help for the weak. It's that God spends so much time bringing home to us that we are weak, mentally, morally, and we dare not trust ourselves to follow the right road. You're an alien. This is not your home. And there's a war to wage. Wage it. It is not your strength. It is not your ability. It's the grace of God that exposes you at every turn. And in that exposure, we are more desperate for His grace. And then finally, to dance like everybody's watching. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. It means beautiful. What you put on display. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Satchel Page is famously quoted as saying, work like you don't need the money, love like you've never been hurt, dance like nobody's watching. There's a professor at UNC, this guy who wrote about leadership and education. He, he took it, he said this, you've got to dance like nobody's watching, love like you'll never be hurt, sing like nobody's listening, and live like it's heaven on earth. And then Kathy Matea in 1989, number one song for 14 weeks, said it this way. You gotta sing like you don't need the money. You gotta love like you'll never get hurt. You gotta dance like nobody's watching. I understand the sentiment. It's actually very, very, very old. But it goes a different way. See, King David knew it centuries ago. In 2 Samuel 6, he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. It's the presence of the Lord. It's been forgotten about for 70 years, it's been tucked away in this little place in the northern part of the kingdom, and he brings it to Jerusalem. And David, when he sees it, it says this, leaping and dancing before the Lord. Thank you, Kevin Bacon, for reminding of this. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon, even to King David. He sees it, and he's dancing and leaping before God. And, and then he offers sacrifices. He lavishes all the people in the kingdom with sweet bread. But his wife, Michael, despised him for it. She said he, he dishonored himself. He was shameless. Listen to David's response. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above his house. He was chosen to appoint me as the prince over Israel, his royalty. And I will make Mary before the Lord. I I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But the servants, they'll hold me in honor. Sing your praises. Dance like a fool. Live generously. Give your life away. My kids, when they were young, we, we, have, we have videos of it, thankfully. They, they dress up, put on plays for their mom and dad, singing, dancing, uninhibited. I'll say it this way. If, 
When you know that you're loved, you're free to love. When you are secure in your identity, you don't care who watches you dance. You know, there's two kinds of brides. One that, and you know them, one that cares about the ring, how big it is, how beautiful it is, what people think of it, that it's envied, that it's awed, that people are impressed. Her identity's the ring. She's a bling bride. You quote me on that. And then there's the other kind of bride. It's not about the ring. It's about the groom. It could be a twisty tie off a loaf of bread. Doesn't matter. She's loved. She's claimed. She, she doesn't talk about the ring. She talks about the groom. It's not the gift of the ring. Her heart is consumed with affection for the giver. George Strait would say, she looks so good in love. So what does it look like? How do we do that? Peter's been telling us. He told us last week, we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God and through Jesus Christ. This, this week, verse 9, we proclaim excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, beautiful. So when they speak against you as evildoers, and they will, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And we dance like everybody's looking. And you know what it is? He told us at the end of chapter 1, we love one another. Peter told us, listen, you're born again. So love one another from a pure heart, genuine, sincere, not putting on a show, all out, real deal, no holding back love. I talk about this at Discover Bethel in 1 John 4, 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You, you expect it to say that since God loved us, we ought to love him back. See, God loved us, and he does love one another. That's how we love God back. He goes on, no one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us. His love's perfected in us. The invisible God becomes visible for the world around us. Jesus and God's, John's gospel, chapter 13, new commandment I give you, to love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know you're my disciples. How? By your love for one another. There's 40 plus one another passages in the New Testament. I went through this with the White House campus last week. Love one another, outdo one another, showing honor. Don't pass judgment on one another. Welcome one another. Live in harmony with one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Did you do that today? Don't? Wait on one another. Comfort one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be kind to one another. Submit to one another. Do not lie to one another. Encourage one another. Seek to do good to one another. Stir up one another to love and good deeds. Do not speak evil against one another. Don't grumble against one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Show hospitality to one another. And on and on. See, some of you, you, you you're trying to do this thing on your own. 
You're chosen, royal, and holy. You're God's possession. He sees you in Christ and in, in community with the body of Christ. You, but you're trying to do it on your own. You, you're a homeless Christian out there being battered by the world. Peter says, this is who you are as God's people. So now I give you a, a quick statistic and then we'll go home, all right? 90% of new members at a church will stay in their congregation. This is incredibly relevant for us. We've had a lot of new members in the last 12 or 15 months. A bunch. But here's the deal. That 90%, this is how you'll, you'll be here six months from now, or not. One, if you can articulate your faith. So, this is what I believe. This is what my church believes. This is what I believe. But who I am, but my desperate need to be saved by another, for my sin to be paid for, for my soul to be washed clean that, that you know what you believe you, you, you could say it out loud secondly do you belong to a small group or a, or a Bible study that sometime during the week there are some other people waiting for you to show up no no I mean look I Small groups are, they're hard because they got people in them. There's nothing like knowing. Man, you know what, Tuesday morning there's some guys, they're looking for me to show up. To open God's word. To be, somebody's looking for me. And I for them. The third one is that you have four to eight close friendships in the congregation, people that, that you call in the middle of the night. So here's this thing. Or when they call you, you'd, you'd answer the phone. Can't do it alone. Dwight Moody, this old preacher. In Chicago, he was visiting this guy, this real prominent guy. And, and the guy, you know, he had his reservations about church. He was high profile and all the things that went on with that. And church membership and church involvement came up. And he said to Moody, he said, you know what? I can be as, I can be as good a Christian outside the church as I can be inside of it. I can be good as good a Christian on the golf course. As I can singing songs and studying God's Word on Sunday morning. Moody, in his wisdom, he didn't say anything. Instead, he moved over to the fireplace, blazing against the winter outside, removed one burning coal and placed it on the hearth. The two men sat together and watched the ember die out. I see said the man. It's who you are. 
God's claimed you. It's praiseworthy. You put us together. Knit us together. You gifted you with, with gift of the spirits that I with the spirit that I desperately need. For us as a body of Christ, Paul says that we grow up together as aliens in a world that's not our own, fighting for each other's faith, loving each other, looking forward together for the trumpet to blow and for Jesus to appear. That's Christianity. I Peter does it in four verses. Took me 40 minutes. There you go. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray for my friends here. I pray that you would take your word and that you would knit it into our hearts. That that we know who we are. privilege and the, and the calling and the mercy and the love and the grace that you've lavished upon us. And that, Father, in that identity and in knowing that we're loved and secure in who we are in your Son, Jesus, Father, I pray, pray we'd fight well against these battles in life that seem intense at moments. And that, Father, as your children, uninhibited, would we dance for the world to watch so that you get all the glory. So, Father, help us to do that. Help us to love one another in a way that everyone would know that we belong to your Son, Jesus. Father, folks in here this morning, I'm sure, one, they're either homeless Christians. I pray, Father, that they would, they would find their place soon. And for Father, there are those this morning that are, that are still on the long, ugly road and still around the corner from grace. I pray this morning that by your grace, through your Son Jesus and the power of your Spirit, would you draw them around the corner in faith and that they would collide with your love and your mercy and grace this morning. Trusting in your Son, Jesus, for everything. Father, this we ask the only way we can, in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.